As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father, your word is um, life to us. Um, And so we pray that this book which you say is living, that it's like a two-edged sword, that it uh, goes where nothing else can go into our very souls, that you would use it to do just that. To grant to us, I pray, great assurance that we belong to you, all those who trust in our Lord Jesus, and that you would bring faith where it's lacking. Father, through this word now, may we come to know your great and awesome power. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to John and chapter uh, 20. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, I want to begin with verse 19. John chapter 20, please. This is the word of the Lord. I'll give you a minute. Keep turning. Come on. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And as the the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, last Sunday, I wasn't here. Karen and I uh, were in Kansas City. I had the privilege of baptizing my newest grandchild, uh, little Emily. It's a great delight to sort of pass on the promises of God's covenant to our next generation. Uh, but I want this Sunday to go back to the theme of the resurrection. Uh, Easter Sunday, a couple of weeks ago. 
do that for a number of reasons, uh, particularly because this season of the year is called Easter Tide. Uh, Easter in the history of the church is bigger than just one Sunday. It, it goes on from Easter Sunday through uh, the day of Pentecost, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, the disciples, the people there in that place on that on that day. Uh, and it's important for us, you know, when we think through the life of Jesus, we begin with Advent and thinking of his coming and his second coming, Christmas, his coming, and then what's called Christmas tide, the proverbial 12 days of Christmas, and then Epiphany, when we think about who is he, who is this one who's really come and then Lent, we think about what did he really, what did he really do? And that culminates in Holy Week as we come to Palm Sunday, then Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday. And then Easter Sunday, uh, we celebrate the resurrection uh, of our Lord Jesus. But, but it's significant, you see, uh, because uh, this resurrection of Jesus, certainly the tomb was empty. Actually, it wasn't. The grave clothes were there, which is a good thing. Because since they were there, everybody got, well, where'd he go? He must not, he's not in the clods anymore. Uh, but, but they were still there. But Jesus was gone from the tomb. Uh, but it, it was then, as Jesus showed himself, these appearances, that we think through very often during this time of Easter, Easter tide. What I read this morning is, is, is a couple of appearances of our Lord Jesus. In John's account, you might remember from Easter Sunday morning, we read somewhere, I think is the call to worship perhaps, we read the opening verses of chapter 20. And there it's Mary who goes to the tomb. Uh, she sees it empty. Uh, she doesn't know what they did with the body of Jesus. She comes running back to the disciples, Peter and John. They go. Uh, they see that the tomb is, is empty. Uh, subsequently, uh, Mary is leaving and she's weeping and she comes to come upon Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. He reveals himself to her. She's overjoyed. She runs and tells the disciples of Jesus. And so we picked this up then uh, that evening, that Sunday evening. And there they are gathered together. And Jesus comes in. The doors are locked. They're afraid. But Jesus comes in. One of the wonderful aspects of a resurrection body, I suppose. He comes in. Doors locked. And he says to them, peace be with you. And he can say that because he won their peace. By his death and resurrection, he won their peace, peace with God. And so he's able to just say, peace uh, with you. And then he shows them his hands and side uh, as if to say, it's really me. It's really Jesus. I'm not a ghost. I'm not an imposter. Uh, you can see the, the nail prints in my hands from the crucifixion and in my feet from the crucifixion and the, the spear in my side that left this wound. And so they know it's really, really Jesus. And he says, he says uh, here, here I am. And then he says again, peace be with you. And, and, and so he then commissions them. This will become, uh, come to fruition on the day of Pentecost for sure. But, but he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathes on them. And he says, basically, I'm giving you this commission to go and to share the gospel because it's about sins forgiven. So through this gospel, sins will be forgiven for those who believe and sins will be withheld from those who don't. And so that's their task to go. Now, fascinatingly, Thomas wasn't there. One of the disciples of Jesus, Thomas, wasn't there. And so he comes then later, as we see, and he wasn't with them. And, and so you can only imagine their excitement. And they say, we've seen the Lord. And poor Thomas is, you know making counseling appointments for his FOMO problem, uh, fear of missing out. And so here he is, and, 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 uh, and they're all excited about this. And, and Thomas says, wait a minute. 
I'm not going to believe until I get to see what you saw. I'm not going to believe until I can see and touch the wounds. And so that's where we have it. With Thomas. Now, you wonder, why wasn't he there? I mean, everybody else was there. Why wasn't, why wasn't Thomas there? But we have no idea, right? We have no idea why he wasn't there. In fact, Thomas isn't really mentioned that often. If you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, what you find is that Thomas is only listed in the lists of the apostles. It's only John that singles out Thomas at all. He comes up in a couple of other places as we're reading through um, John's gospel. And in chapter 11, uh, you might remember that, that, that Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill and subsequently dies. And at first Jesus doesn't go up, but then he says, I'm going to go up. And all the disciples there around Jesus said, no, 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 don't go. Don't you remember that the, the religious authorities uh, want to stone you to death? And Jesus said, well, I know I'm going to go anyway. And it's Thomas who says, well, let's go with him so we can die with him. And then later, on what we call the night that Jesus was betrayed, that Monday, Thursday evening, Jesus is with his disciples in, the, in that room together celebrating Passover. And Thomas asks a question that provides for us ultimately, really, the linchpin of the gospel. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away. And, and, and Thomas says, but we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at that point, we're going, thanks, Thomas, for asking that question. I'm sure Jesus would have snuck that sentence in somehow, but, but, but he got it right there. And so that's what we know about Thomas until now when he's absent from this great appearance of Jesus when the other disciples have gathered. Now, you get the impression Jesus knew Thomas wasn't going to be there because Jesus was orchestrating this whole event, obviously. We know God is sovereign and it was his plan uh, to send his son. But even in the life of Jesus, just in these last uh, day or two, we see Jesus orchestrating all of this because we know that he gave himself. Nobody took his life. He, 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 he gave it. I mean... You get the sense even when he was in the upper room with with the disciples and he's interacting with Judas. He knows exactly what is going to happen. He knows exactly that Judas has betrayed him and going to even go get the authorities to come after him. And we realize that when he did get the authorities to come after Jesus and they met there in that garden, that, that, that Jesus could have gotten away at any time because when they approached him, he said, here I am. And they, all, the, all the soldiers just fell down. I mean, if you, know, you want a way of escape, that's when to do it. But he let him get up and take him. And we know that during his trial, Jesus didn't defend himself in a way that would get him off, even though there were lies told against him and all those sorts of things. And, and so we, we get it. We get that, that Jesus is orchestrating this, this whole event, this whole affair, and this as well. And we can only realize that Thomas not being there was very important for him. And I would say this, very important for us. Now, now, usually when we um, think through this incident with Thomas, we're, we're thinking about how can we receive comfort in our doubts? You know, that's his nickname, isn't it? Doubting Thomas. And so, 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 so people often use this passage to talk about dealing with our doubts. 
Although I must confess that when I was a kid, one of the primary applications of this was from my Sunday school teachers who would say things like, don't miss Sunday night church. Because Thomas did. You know what happened to him. He missed out on seeing Jesus. And so didn't help me. I only went to Sunday night church because my father bribed me with a root beer float afterwards. Uh, if I actually went. So I did. It was great. Um, but the primary application often is this whole idea of, of Thomas doubting. And we get that. We, we understand doubts. Uh, our dear friend uh, John Calvin uh, in uh, Peace Out of the Institutes' work said this. It says, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. We we, we know this can be true. In our theological standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this line comes out of the chapter on assurance. It says, this infallible insurance is not so essential to faith that a true believer may not have doubts and conflicts about it, possibly uh, wait for some time to get it and to grow into it. In other words, we can believe, but, but yet still the assurance, the pure assurance uh, that we belong to the Lord subjectively may, for some of us, be a difficult thing. Some because of temperament. Some people just find it more difficult, I suppose. Some could be circumstantial. I, I, I think about John the Baptist of all people. Y- you remember when, when Elizabeth, his mom, was carrying John in her womb and Mary was carrying Jesus in hers that when Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth, that John leapt in Elizabeth. Even then he knew Jesus was around and he knew who he was. Even the baptism of Jesus, of course, uh, John knew exactly who Jesus was and why he had come. He said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then when John was in prison, he sent some of his disciples to some of Jesus' disciples with the question, Is he really the one? Is Jesus really the one? And Jesus gave him a wonderful response to prove that he was. But there he was. And you remember that that man whose son had been terrorized by demons and he brought him to Jesus to be healed. and, and, uh, And he said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. So we understand that we see Thomas here. But, but, but I wonder, is this really that? Is that really appropriate for us to think through doubts when we come to this passage? Because, uh, first of all, just the passage itself in verse 27, in the English Standard Version that I read, it says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. In the New International Version, it's translated like this. Stop doubting and believe. The difficulty is that... John doesn't use the typical word for doubt here. He actually uses the word for disbelieve. Um, Greek, you know, when I was in seminary, I got to know a little Greek. His name was Nick. Um, Ran a delicatessen. Uh, It's really true. Uh, But um, the Greek word for believe is pistos. And John uses a word for unbelief here, ah, pistos. The ah negates the belief. And so he's talking about belief and unbelief more than just belief and doubting. He could have said doubt, but he didn't. You get the sense that what Thomas is saying is, 
I, I don't believe that he's resurrected from the dead until I see him in the same way that you did. And I have to be honest with you, I don't blame Thomas about that. I mean, they had to see Jesus like that in order to really believe. Turn back uh, to Luke in chapter 24. This was our Easter passage four or five years ago. Um, it would be my Easter passage every year, but I, I, cause this is, I love this passage so much. But Luke 24, verse 36, same night that Jesus showed himself to the disciples. As they were talking about these things, that is the resurrection of Jesus and so forth, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. So these are all the disciples without Thomas and, and they're still not getting it right off the bat. They think they see a ghost. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts, that's the real word for doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is that it is I myself, I'm not an imposter, it's just really me. Touch me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, I'm not a ghost. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, now that's the expression, I hope you remember. It's one of those wonderful expressions. It's, 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 it's an expression that means something like, um, this, this is too good to be true. This is more wonderful than I could ever imagine, you know. You've probably experienced that if you've gone in for a job interview and you're sitting there and they say you have the job, you walk out the door and you go, did he just say I had the job, right? Or, or, or when you, you say, she just said, I love you too. And you go, she just really said that, right? So whatever it is, it's, it's too good to be true, you know? And, and so, so they disbelieved for joy. And while they were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. In other words, Jesus was doing everything he possibly could to say, it's really me. I've really risen from the dead. And they got to see all of that. They weren't the the great champions of faith at that point. So why would we expect Thomas to be? Thomas is just simply saying, I'm not going to believe it until I see what you saw. So Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes to him. And he reveals himself to Thomas in the same way that he did those, uh, those other disciples. Um, so here he is. So the question for me is, what am I to get uh, out of this uh, really? And, and I would say a, a couple of things, at least maybe three. We'll see how much time we have. But a couple of things. Uh, first of this, what we're to really get from this passage is, is that a profession of faith that Thomas made. The profession of faith that Thomas made. It's in verse uh, 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You, you see, that's worship. It's as if Thomas is bowing down before Jesus and he's saying, you're my Lord and, and my God. When he says, my Lord, he's saying the same thing really as my God because Lord to a Jewish man was God. And it was an amazing thing for a Jewish man who knew that you'd have no other gods before me to know that our God is one to say, my Lord. That was the Old Testament language for God, Lord. Lord in my, my God. It was consistent in Thomas's mind that it all came together, no doubt, with everything that, that he had known of Jesus. For instance, in John, in chapter 5, Jesus says this of himself. Verse 22. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father, uh, does not honor the Son, does not honor, honor the Father who sent him. And then, of course, uh, that classic expression in John chapter 8, when the religious leaders are saying, we're children of Abraham. And, and Jesus says to them, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And that was just an amazing thing for this guy who's standing before you to say that he was before this one who had come centuries before. And you realize what he's saying. And they realized what he was saying. So they picked up stones to throw at him because they realized that he was claiming, if you will, uh, to be God. And then this expression as well, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We're together. I and the Father are one. Or even on that night that he was betrayed, when he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You get the sense that for Thomas, all that's now coming together. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus, as we said on Easter Sunday, validates the person and work of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus validates the person and the work of Christ. Paul writes to the church in Rome and says that it was the resurrection of Jesus that declared him to be, by the Spirit, the Son of God. And Thomas sees that. He gets that. Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, I get now, you see, is, is true. But significant here as well is the little pronoun, my. Uh, some have put it like this, that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. Normally that quote is ascribed to Martin Luther, but nobody could ever find anywhere in Luther's writings where he actually said that. But he should have. Uh, it would have been good. Plus it would give that whole quote some authority other than me. But Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. My Lord my God. Remember on Easter Sunday, we used the text from Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that's just not some simple formula. It isn't where you just say this, but, but you say it because you believe it. You say that he's Lord because you know that God has raised him from the dead. And if God has raised him from the dead, then he indeed is the Lord. And so that's exactly what Thomas is doing. He's professing with his mouth that Jesus is Lord because he believes now in his heart that God raised him from the dead. So he says, my Lord and, and, and my God. So really the question is, is that true for you as well? Can you say my Lord and my God. Do you believe in your heart that he's raised from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he's the Lord? Is that true for you? Yeah, that's an examination. That's a time of reflection for each of us. Do we believe that? Is that true for us? Do we rest our case there? Do we trust that the foundation of our life Nothing else matter but that. That's the sense of it. My Lord and my God. But there's something else here. Something else here. And, and, and that is, 
Jesus turns to Peter in verse, I mean, sorry, Jesus turns to Thomas in verse 29 and says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? I don't think that's a rebuke. He's just saying, just affirming, you've, you believe because you've seen me. But then he says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because that's the big question as I come to this passage now. I get why the disciples of Jesus believe they saw Jesus. They touched him. I can see why Thomas would believe that Jesus is risen because he saw him. How many have seen him? How many? How many? I haven't seen him. He would ascend. You see, during this time, it would be a reasonable thing to say, I want to see this risen Christ because he was showing himself. But, but we know that it wouldn't be long before he would ascend into heaven. And then the question is, well, how will any believe because you can't see him? What will be that work? What will be that process? How will any believe? And so Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. He pronounces a benediction, a blessedness. He said, these are the ones who are affirmed by God. These are the ones who are accepted by God. These who haven't seen, but actually, but actually believe. How will they, in fact, believe? Well, Jesus had already told us that. You have to eavesdrop a little bit on Jesus because it's in one of his prayers in John 17, verse 20. This is Jesus right before he was arrested to be crucified. It was that night. John seventeen twenty. Jesus is praying. I do not ask for these only, that is, his disciples there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, that would be the means by which people would see Jesus. That would be the means through which people would come to believe. Not by seeing Jesus physically as they did, not by touching him as they did, not by eating with him as they did, but but by hearing this word, this word of these witnesses. That's why, you see, it was so important for all of them who would be the witnesses to actually see Jesus so they could testify to what they saw so that others would hear that testimony, their eyewitness accounts, and believe. When we come to the book of Acts, for instance, Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when we read that, we jump way ahead to us. That that's what we're to do. And it's true, we're to be his witnesses. But it was particular to the witnesses who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. So they go out, we read this in the book of Acts, and what do they give witness to? Oh, I'm sure they talked about the teachings of Jesus, but they particularly talked about the resurrection of Jesus because that validated everything. They were the witnesses who bore witness of what they had seen, and what they had seen was the risen Christ. I can't do that. I haven't seen him like they saw him. But Jesus said, that's all right. Because they'll, that's the way, that's the process, that's the means by which. So in the end of Acts chapter 1, when they were choosing another apostle to take the place of Judas, we find this. So one of the men who have, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And Peter's very explicit about this in Acts 10 when he's uh, speaking. In Acts 10, verse 39, he speaks of Jesus and and he says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, it's these witnesses who bring this word of the resurrection that others might not see Jesus as they did, but they would, in fact, believe. In fact, that's exactly what John's doing as he writes this gospel. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then over in chapter 21, verse 24, John writes, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, that is John, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John, like the other gospel writers, was very selective in what he wrote because he had a particular purpose. He knew... That after Jesus' ascension, the way to faith was not to see Jesus as they did, but to hear the testimony of Jesus and believe. So John writes, as the other writers in the New Testament write about Jesus, for that very purpose. In fact, John was so selective that we have in his gospel only 20 or 21 days in the life of Jesus. In fact... Seven out of the 21 chapters cover less than 24 hours, chapters 13 through 19, of Jesus' life. But for John, you see, he's saying, I'm writing this so that you'll believe because that's the means by which faith comes. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Romans, put it like this, chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes, I'm going to add something, not by seeing Jesus. Faith comes, this is what, John, what Paul actually wrote, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, this gospel. So when John writes, you see, he's laying all of this out. He provides signs that Jesus really is the Christ. He starts out with Jesus turning water into wine. And then he shows Jesus healing from a distance, this official son. And then he heals this man who's been laying by this pool who's paralyzed. He heals that person. And then he, he feeds 5,000. Then he walks on water. And, he, and he, he takes this man who was born blind and gives him eyes to see. And, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So John said, I've put these signs in there so you'll believe. But none of that makes any difference at all. Unless he's risen from the dead, unless he really is the son of God, unless he really is the Christ. And and, and John lays out for us as well. He says, I want to tell you who Jesus is. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. 
He's the good shepherd. He's, he's the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the true vine. And you go, who, who can be that? Who can make those kinds of claims? Who can say, you can feed off me for eternal life? Who can really say, you can see everything through me? And if you don't see through me, everything else is darkness. You can say that the good shepherd of God's sheep, the way to see God is through me, this door, I am the door. You can say, I'm the resurrection and the life. That if you believe in me, you'll never die. And even if you die, you'll live. Who can say that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Who can make that kind of claim? Who can say I'm the true vine? Unless you're attached to me, you die. But if you're attached to me, you have eternal life. And so... You, you read through the gospel and if you're reading it for the first time and you're reading with any kind of eyes to see, you're on the end of your seat, you're going, can this really be true? Can he really be the one? And then, and then, he, and then he's killed and then you go, it's over. And then you go, no, it's not. He rises from the dead and that's it. John Gant says, I got you. I got you. We saw it. He writes in his first epistle, that was what we've seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. We make known to you. That's the means you see. That's the means of it. Now note this. What this is suggesting to us is that the word of God, the gospel, preached, declared, shared, proclaimed, is as powerful to convert as seeing Jesus. The early disciples, they saw Jesus and boom, they were converted. Now how does that happen? It happens as the gospel is being shared, you see. It's that powerful. That's why Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It's not just simply some information. It's power. It's the power of God unto all who believe. Peter puts it like this in, in 1 Peter and uh, in chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 23 He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is so powerful that it brings life. It causes people to be born again. Then for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. And together we say, The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's powerful, you see. The author of Hebrews says it's living, it's alive, it goes deeper than anything else. It cuts. That's what this word of God does. So Paul says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And then the question, well, how can they hear? And he says, well, they can't hear unless someone is sent. And thus our missionary endeavors. But please be aware of this. Sunday school teachers. VBS teachers, Bible study leaders, parents sharing with your kids, kids sharing the gospel with your parents, sharing with your neighbors, co-workers. When you lay out the gospel, it's as if Jesus enters the room. No, he doesn't. 
In that same sense, we're not seeing him. But it's that kind of power, you see. It's that kind of power. That's now the means by which people see him. You say, what about those people who say they have seen Jesus? Uh, various accounts. Some of you have shared stories with me. You heard the voice of the Lord or whatever. And they go, okay, clearly it's not the norm. That's not how it's laid out in the scripture to say you can expect to see Jesus. You can demand to see Jesus like they did. But if he has revealed himself to you in that kind of personal way, perhaps hearing, seeing, whatever, the only way we know that's true is if what you saw or what you heard lines up with what they saw. And we only know what they saw because they reported it to us. And that's your only hope. That you now believe what they saw is really true. So Peter, the apostle, describes our life like this in First Peter In chapter 1, in verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I mean, have you ever kind of sat down with yourself and said, I've never seen Jesus. But he's everything to me. I've, I've never seen him, but I've given my life for him. I've never seen him, but, 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 but he's the foundation of, of, of my life. Now, are you just gullible? I think not. You're evidence of the power of the gospel. And that same power that's been at work in you. God will use to be at work in others as we're faithful, as we're faithful to share it. So you see, the means of of our conversion, the means of our assurance is this, this word of God. And here we have before us this, that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup. And here's the operative words for the morning. We declare the Lord's death until he comes. (laughs) Well, what do we mean by that? We mean he's alive. We mean he's coming again. That same Jesus, this same Jesus we trust, is returning because he's risen. He's risen from the dead. And we, though we haven't seen him yet, believe him, trust him, and we'll see him. And we'll see him. Let's pray, Father. I pray for all of us. Though we haven't seen him, we 
believe in him and are filled with joy and are experiencing even now the life of one who's been saved. So we're grateful for that. And even now, we pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set apart in such a way that though we can't see him, we know that he is alive and he is by his spirit here with us to nurture us, to care for us, to love us, to fill us, to bless us, to guide us, to lead us, to help us, to protect us, to defend us. And we know because he has risen and descended and rules and reigns that he'll return and a day will come uh, when we will see him. For that we await our great and blessed hope. As we come to this table, I pray, grant to us assurance of Christ risen, sins forgiven, life filled, that we may live. And this I pray in Jesus' name.